If you're involved in a motorcycle accident, there's some things you should do and say, and some others that you shouldn't. By mixing those up, you'll completely change the outcome when dealing with your insurance companies down the road. Today, we have Matt Danielson, a rider and a lawyer from the Motorcycle Law Group. And Matt has extensive riding experience and even more experience when dealing with insurance companies and legal issues when it comes to motorcycling. Today, Matt will give you some inside tips on how to handle yourself in the unlikely event of a motorcycle accident. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Alan Carl. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmutz. Brett Tuck. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Russ. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Lawrence Hacking. I'm Woody from Woody's Wheelworks. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it can inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and get this, it has a lifetime warranty, which is brand new. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to fit in your saddlebag, and the crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves. They know what you need when you're exploring the world visit them at cyclepump.com that's cyclepump.com brand new for 2016 starting with this episode we have a new segment called rider skills and in rider skills we're going to be dealing with just that our riding skills helping us understand how we can handle our motorcycles better particularly in the dirt but before we get to that we're going to talk about some legal issues Matt Danielson rode a motorcycle from the Atlantic to the Pacific in 43 hours and 56 minutes. He's also ridden all over the states and takes regular trips with his co-workers. Matt, who rides a Harley-Davidson road glide, is a lawyer for the Motorcycle Law Group in Richmond, Virginia. He's also a lobbyist for motorcycle riders' rights. I spoke with Matt from his office in Richmond, Virginia. Well, Matt, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start off, first of all, I know that all the, the people involved, at least that's what I read, all the people involved with the Motorcycle Law Group are riders themselves. Is that the case? It is. Uh, actually, you can't practice law here uh, if you don't ride. Um, wow. And And interestingly enough, uh, Tom and I were talking the other day, and we just realized that currently, while it's not a requirement, all of our staff rides too. Paralegal, secretaries, whole nine yards. I like that. So you go through all the work of becoming a lawyer, and then you've got somebody telling you, no, no hang on a second, you're not qualified yet. <laughs> you got to get a bike license. Uh, <laughs> I've had people talk to me about that before, and I'm like, well, you're not hiring right now, but if we were, you, you, you do you ride? And they kind of look at you funny. What, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> Well, I, I read uh, about how the firm got started and how um, Tom McGrath had, uh, I, I guess, uh, started out and got his things going. you want to just give us a quick rundown on that? Yeah. Um, it, interestingly enough, uh, Tom and my father, who was a private investigator, worked together when I was, you know, small. We're talking eight, nine years old. Um, and uh, so 
Tom had been doing personal injury work uh, for years, and uh, he was a rider. And probably back in the 90s, early 90s, uh, he was approached by some motorcyclists in central Virginia. Uh, Motorcyclists were not being allowed to use the HOV lanes. And, of course, that seemed kind of unfair. Um, And he went and looked and found federal law that required it and uh, threatened Virginia with, with a lawsuit. Uh, they made an exemption for motorcycles, uh, which I think is now an exemption everywhere in the country. Um, and that kind of spurred motorcyclists to start coming to them. Okay. There was really nobody who was just kind of focusing on motorcycles. And uh, soon he started doing more lobbying work at the General Assembly. Uh, soon most of his injury cases started being motorcyclists, and he started focusing the practice in on that. This is why I wanted to talk about the background, because I want people to realize that we're not just speaking with a lawyer who happens to deal with, um, you know, motorcycle injury or something like that. There's a there's a deep set of roots here because you guys are heavily involved um, with lobbying for motorcyclist rights um, while you're not working on uh, law cases. Yes, um, we uh, we not only active in, in, in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, but on the federal level as well through the Motorcycle Riders Foundation. Um, and, and through that organization, get the privilege of working with motorcyclists in states all over the country. Because if there's something going on in Oregon, trust me, it's going to make its way to the East Coast. Uh, and it's really helpful having, having those connections. Um, but Tom always had a philosophy that I have now picked up uh, and I've worked with and Liz and, and Chad do the same. And that is um, you could hire any lawyer. Motorcyclist gets in an accident, he can hire anybody. Um, I, I think having someone that rides certainly adds a dimension in, in, of uh, competence to your case when your lawyer knows what you've been through, uh, what certain situations require. Uh, but what we do is we take the legal fees that we – our legal fees, part of those go into lobbying efforts to better motorcycling not only in the states that we work but across the country. So we like to hope that by coming to us, you're also helping motorcycling uh, for everyone. Why would someone do that? I mean, I mean, it just seems kind of strange. You know, I mean, I think it says something about someone's love for, for whatever when you're taking a portion of your profits and putting them into something that's not making any money. Oh, God, you sound like my dad because um, <laughs> he asks me that all the time. He's like, well, uh, now, you're flying out to South Dakota to sit down and talk to motorcyclists. How are you making any money from Well, that? that's I'm exactly like, it. And yeah. I mean, especially a lawyer. Your lawyers are supposed to be, you know, you're gung-ho people. You, you go and you make things happen and you make money doing it. And here you're giving it away. Well, uh, I'm not really I, – I guess you, that's one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it is you're really not giving it away because um, if motorcycling gets improved – in, in in North Carolina, well, it gets approved for me as well. Um, perfect example would be uh, the fights uh, on motorcycle-only checkpoints. Um, I don't know if you've heard about the – have you heard about the motorcycle-only checkpoints? Well, checkpoint I have heard about it. Let's just talk about those be- before you tell the story. Tell what they are. Okay. Um, somebody uh, – they really – I want to say they started in New York. I could be wrong there, but that's when we really started hearing about them. And they were uh, – like sobriety checkpoints, only they were set up for motorcyclists. Only, not for drunk motorcyclists, but just checking motorcyclists, stopping only motorcyclists to check for things like, you know, exhausts, 
uh, helmets, equipment. Uh, heck, up in New York, they were even running through VIN numbers to see if people were on stolen motorcycles. Um, and then we started seeing them in Georgia. Uh, and a lot of these motorcycle-only checkpoints were being done with grant money from NHTSA, National Highway Transportation Safety. Um, and they were giving money for these checkpoints. Uh, so some states, North Carolina and Virginia, where I'm from, uh, you know, we found these extremely uh, – what's the word I'm trying to think of? Uh, discriminatory. And there's no reason to just stop motorcyclists. Um, and the, the really tipping point here in Virginia was during Rolling Thunder, they set one up. And so we worked with, the st- with our state legislatures and got them banned in Virginia. Okay, so so the problem with these is, I mean, they're 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 targeting motorcyclists. They're going just for what you ride. So in other words, the same thing could be Correct. said if they went for, uh, you know, red Datsuns or something like that. And and that that is somehow sort of a violation of our rights. Correct. I mean, look, the Supreme Court's made it clear that that checkpoints are okay, um, but one of the there's there's certain rules, and one of those rules is the officers can't have discretion in who they're pulling over, um, and kind of singling out motorcyclists to just being stopped on a whim um, seemed one to be illegal uh, two certainly discriminatory um, that's not you know I don't want to have to worry about getting stopped when I'm riding around the country and um, here in the here in Virginia we got them declared illegal but if I ride to your state what state by the way what state are you in uh, Canada okay great I ride to Canada uh, which I have ridden to Canada. It's a beautiful place to ride. Um, so I ride to Canada. Once I get out of Virginia, I'm subject to being stopped at a bunch of other states. So, you know, working with the MRF, we just recently got passed in, uh, and when I say we, motorcyclists, uh, not my firm necessarily, uh, but those of us who are working on it got language included in the latest highway bill that pulls federal funding for motorcycle-only checkpoints. Um, why put all that work into it? To get back to the original question, um, because it makes motorcycling better for everyone. And if you're a passionate motorcyclist, you want to make motorcycling better for yourself as well as everybody else that rides. Um, I'm going to guess you wouldn't be doing this radio show if uh, you weren't passionate about motorcycling. And I think one of the things to, to think about here for everyone, this show is listened to around the world, so people in all different countries listen to it. But the thing is, anything that happens in one place, and, and it starts to become a, a big thing, especially in the United States, and you were saying it, it carries over from state to state, it'll carry over country to country, because a lot of it is due, to do with population and, and the way society evolves, right? And, and that's why we run into these things. So it's, it, it's interesting to look at these problems when they pop up um, and consider that there very well may be a time, if it's not happening already, but there very well may, may be a time down the road, this may be happening in your country, in your state, wherever you live. You are 100% correct. Uh, and that is why uh, actually the uh, Motorcycle Riders Foundation will send people over to the European conferences to see what's going on over there in Europe, because it, it jumps across the pond real quick. What type of things do you run into most when it comes to dealing with motorcycle law? Um, some of the uh, – there are several things that we end up running into. Um, one of the fights that we'll have quite often in a motorcycle accident is there will be a denial of liability. What I mean by that, the other side says we're not at fault for this uh, because there was no contact between the two vehicles. Um, and – you think about it, you're in a car, 
all right? You're riding down, someone turns in front of you, you hit the brakes and hope for the best. I mean, you got steel all around you, you got a seatbelt, the whole nine yards. Um, motorcyclists are taught to avoid the collision at all cost. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you, you, do whatever you can to avoid being hit. So essentially what we find is the motorcyclist does everything they're supposed to do, and then someone tries to penalize them for it, which makes absolutely no sense. So we often have to have that fight. So sure, you, you have a vehicle coming at you, you, you swerve, it's a near miss, and you find yourself in the ditch with a, a broken fairing and, and some damaged parts. And they're going to say that, uh, while well, you're on your own. Yeah, you know, there was no contact between our vehicles. You know, you you went down. Or the, well, and sometimes a motorcyclist does it to myself because I always love the. Uh, well, I laid it down, and I'm always I always tell them, no, you didn't. You crashed. You mm-hmm. you're you're not evil, can evil. You <laughs> you grabbed all of the front brake and rear brake, and when you grabbed all of the front brake, that bike went down. You crashed. But and the reason you crashed is because you were forced to do what you did because of the other person. You're fine, and we can usually we can usually win that fight. So we run into that a lot. Um, some of the other things we run into are uh, any almost every jury pool I get, I'm going to have some people on it who have certain preconceived ideas about motorcyclists as being risk takers. Um, uh, some people believe that if you get hurt on a motorcycle, it's kind of your fault for being on the motorcycle to start with there's still some feelings like that out there. So I always have to ferret those out to make sure that I can keep those people off of my jury. Some of the other issues we have come more from some of the typical types of injuries that we see in motorcycle cases. Um, A lot of times, uh, for instance, we will see torn rotator cuffs, things such as that. Uh, that seems to be a common accident, and, and that's just because oftentimes the person gets separated from the motorcycle and they go down on the shoulder or something. Um, and uh, a lot of our folks tend to, you know, t- tend to be a little – try to be a little tougher. And so when the initial pains and aches go away, um, they realize this nagging in their shoulder and they – figure it's going to go away and figure it's going to go away. And then six to eight months down the road, they finally go to the doctor. It gets diagnosed at that point. And then the insurance company is saying, well, it wasn't diagnosed till six or eight months down the road. How do we know it's from the accident? And we have to have that fight. It's it's really interesting from my perspective. Anyway, what I see here is I think a lot of times people think about, you know, what is right and what is wrong. And well, wait a second, it was their fault that this happened and they should have to pay. But what it comes down to really is everybody's protecting money. I mean, you've got your, in my <sighs> mind, you've got your insurance companies who are protecting. They do not want to pay. They're going to find every way they can. And really looking at it from a cold perspective, they're not, they're not really looking at you sort of as a person, are they? You are 100% correct. Uh, you, you couldn't have stated that better. Um, when I was a prosecutor, um, there was almost no what we call discovery. Uh, the, the other side was very limited in what they got to learn. So if you're trying a case where someone can be executed or be put in prison for life, you actually don't have to tell them a whole lot. But in our civil system, there's massive amounts of discovery because we're talking about money now. That's really important. So um, – I had a defense attorney uh, in, a, in a civil case. Uh, I had several cases with him, and he always in – in a mediation, he'll always come out and say to the, the plaintiff, 
I don't care what the truth is. I only care what a jury thinks the truth is. Hmm. And here's what I'm going to be able to do. So, yeah, it, it can get – and one of the biggest frustrations that I have, you hit it right in the head, I'll have people saying to me, why aren't they just taking care of me? Don't they understand that my life has been changed? Don't they understand that you know I, I'm not going to be able to continue doing my job anymore? Because as you can imagine, a lot of my clients are you know a lot of my clients are hardworking blue collar workers. You know I get a lot of mechanics. Um, I get a lot of folks that do uh, physical labor, and when they're not working, they're not getting paid. And when you got a broken leg or a torn rotator cuff or busted ribs, you're not out there doing those jobs. And they can't understand it's because they have a very strong sense of right or wrong. They don't understand why the other party's not stepping up and taking care of their responsibility. Well, it's because the other party is being controlled by the insurance company and they kind of treat everyone like they jumped on the bus after the accident happened. So let's talk about what to do um, in the event of an accident, because I think this is really important. I know you've got some great information. I've read one of your posts on it the, that you did on your website. Um, so give us the list. Give us the rundown on, on what should we do in an accident. Um, number one, my number one rule to people in an accident. Well, let's first of all, you get an accident. Um, if... You want to do, obviously, self-check, make sure you're okay, see if you're hurt. Um, one is if you can or you have a friend who can, get the names of any witnesses who were there at the accident. And the reason I say that, um, I also, used, by the way, used to be a police officer. So I'm kind of familiar with this mindset. Uh, I'm a police officer. Uh, I, I, uh, you're a motorcyclist, uh, and the, there, there's, you know, John Doe, uh, turns left in front of you and John Doe, I walk up, there's three or four witnesses standing around and John Doe says, I didn't see him. I was taken left. I didn't see him in the police officer's mind. Boom. I got John Doe just admitted that he turned left in front of him. That's all I need for the ticket. I release all the witnesses because I got what I need. Because all I'm interested in doing my paperwork, getting the ticket written. So we get two years down the road in a civil claim, and John Doe is faced with the statement he made to the police officer. And he says, no, I didn't see him because he was speeding. I mean, he just flew right up over the hill, and I, I didn't have a chance to get out of the way at that point. So he's kind of changed his tune. Now I've lost all of those witnesses who could have said – no, the motorcycle wasn't speeding. And then the natural assumption is, I mean, I think for most people, is you think the police officer's there and they're going to get all the information and they're going to document the whole scene and you'll just be able to, to afterwards say, well, can I see that file? And, and that'll have all the bits in there. So it's interesting to hear the perspective of, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, that's what they're there for. They're, they're writing a ticket. They're not worrying about the lawsuit down the road. The, the, absolutely. Uh, they're there to uh, write the police report, um, issue the citation, uh, go to court, get the conviction, and then it's over. So uh, many, many, many times we don't get uh, the names or addresses of any witness. We don't get photographs and we don't get anything like that. Let me ask you, though, for that one point, how serious of an accident need it be for us to start doing that? Um, I, I assume it's a serious accident. Um, I, it doesn't have... 
do it for the, your simple fender bender. And here's why I tell you that. Um, at the scene of an accident, there's adrenaline pumping. All right. Um, you're, you know, you're, 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 like I said, jacked up on adrenaline. Um, there may be certain things that are kind of sore, but you know, you don't really realize, you know, eh, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be fine. And it's not until the next morning, uh, the next day, the next couple days that you start realizing, man, you know, this knee, hell, it's popping. This is kind of strange. I wonder what's going on. And then it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And you finally go to the doctor and you get checked out and you got a torn meniscus. And now they got to go in and do orthopedic, they got to do orthoscopic surgery and clean your knee out. Well, at the scene of the accident, you had no idea you had a torn meniscus. As far as you knew, you're just a little sore. So it was a minor accident. Assume they're all major and, and do it in all cases. The other thing is make sure you go to the doctor, get checked out. I get too many people that don't go at all. Go and get checked out. Um, I, again, People think, you know, the lawyer's telling people to go to the doctor so that they can up their medical bills and it'll make their case worth more. No, that's not why I'm saying it. I'm saying it because too often what happens is what we talked about earlier. Um, If you don't go to the doctor and then it's, you know, several months to go down the road and that's when you're like, this isn't getting any better. I better go. The insurance company is going to start claiming that your injury is not from the accident. And they will take your medical records or lack thereof to try to prove that. And they will get a doctor to come to court to say, um, well, I'm looking at the records and he didn't start complaining of this until about six weeks out. So um, I don't see any way to tell that this is related to the accident. And if it's not related to the accident, they don't have to pay. So um, I tell people, go to the doctor not to inflate your damages, meaning not to make your case worth more, but do it so you can keep good documentation um, because that's really one of the most important things. Um, I will tell you though, my number one rule at the scene of an accident, when I go out and give talks everywhere uh, and I tell people if they remember nothing else, remember this. And that is shut the hell up. Just don't talk. Don't, you don't make any statements. Um, here in the United States, you are not required to give a statement to the police. You have a right to say nothing. The reason I say that is uh, go back to, uh, to what we were talking about, about adrenaline going during an accident. Uh, you're all jacked up. You may be in pain. Um, you're the worst person to give a statement about what occurred. And so when the police come and ask you what happened – um, quite often the person that was in the accident gets things wrong. Okay. Why is that important? Let's say you're riding down the road, per- person turns left in front of you and the officer comes and asks you what happened and you're, you know, you're ticked off and you, that SOB wasn't paying attention and he turned left in front of me. How fast were you going? when I was going 45 and it turns out you were in a 35 mile an hour zone. Well, in many States across the country, you've just admitted to speeding so you can be found partially at fault, even though the other person uh, caused the accident. You can be found partially at fault, which reduces the amount of the recovery you're entitled to. In some states in the United States, including mine, uh, it is reason to f- forfeit any recovery altogether. Um, so the mere act of speeding 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. Uh, can be enough to uh, require a jury 
uh, to award you nothing. And so what I find a lot of times when people say, how fast were you going? They're estimating anyway because they weren't staring at the speedometer at the time the accident took place. It is always best to say nothing at all. Um, what I always tell people is just you know, say, I'm a little shaken up. I'd like to go to the hospital. Uh, I'll be glad to speak, give a statement at a later time. Um, and don't be pushed into doing it. Uh, I tell people that feel free to give me a call. I don't charge for time. Uh, you know, people in my practice area, uh, I've even had people outside of my practice area call me. I'll be glad to talk to them about the facts of their case and let them know if they can talk to the police or not. But a lot of times making a statement at the scene of the accident, um, can really cost someone their entire claim just because they said something which may be wrong. And I like that what you said about estimating, because I think a lot of times when we're stressed about something like that, you just spew something out and you haven't really thought it through and thought, well, no, I couldn't have been doing 45 because I just pulled off the other light there. Um, so yeah, you can, you can really trip yourself up by, by just talking, but you also have specified in, in your article there about in particular that I, I was thinking in particular about making that statement to police where they want you to sign it or, or make the statement of what happened and, and, and they can push you for it. Um, and they will. Because they want to do their paperwork. Absolutely. They want to close this out. They, they, they want to get it done, do their paperwork, and move on to the next one. Um, and, and trust me, some people think, you're anti-law enforcement. No, I'm not. I was law enforcement. I was a police officer for three years. I was a prosecutor for 10. Um, so I have 13 years in law enforcement before I started doing this. I'm not anti-law enforcement, but I'm certainly pro-rider. And um, you shouldn't be bullied into doing something you're uncomfortable about. Um uh, I had – I wrote, a, wrote an article on, on this very issue, and I had a police officer um, – <laughs> I had a police officer uh, shoot me an email, and he was really upset about the fact that I was telling people not to talk to the police. Uh, and he said, well, I'm just going to make my decision based on what I have there if you're not going to give a statement. I said, well, that's your prerogative. Fine. Do that if you must. Um I reminded him, however, that one of the other things that I did at the time is I would, if a police officer was involved in a shooting, I would go out at no cost to the officer and sit and talk to him and let him give me a statement, which he had a right to talk to counsel prior to giving a statement to his department about what happened. And if a police officer can be afforded the right to reflect and calm down and speak with somebody prior to giving a statement, then why shouldn't the citizen be afforded the same thing? And I never heard back from him. <laughs> we'll be back in just a minute with Matt Danielson and more information. We're also going to talk about fuel and the ethanol that's added to fuel and why it shouldn't be in there for motorcycles. So stick with us. I want to take a minute now and talk to you about a new show sponsor for us, Giant Loop. Now, I've mentioned to you before, we only take advertisers for Adventure Rider Radio that we believe in, that we can get behind. And the companies that you hear on here now, they didn't just show up one day. They're companies that we've been talking with for a long time about the show. And Giant Loop is one of those. And um, Giant Loop has a reputation now for building amazing gear, especially for light enduro bikes. That's where they started out. They started out making uh, gear really just for themselves because they were looking for gear that was extremely tough 
off, very lightweight, and could be fastened to an enduro bike and then head up into the high desert country of uh, eastern Oregon, which is where they're from. Now, uh, riders all around the world have ridden with giant loop products in every continent but Antarctica, and they've proven to be amazingly durable bags. Not only are they durable, but they've got these systems where they fasten to the bike that are incredible. And they're quickly gaining a reputation for having the best fastening system for these bags that they're making. The bags are amazingly durable. But that's not all that they do. They're also the exclusive distributor for North America for Rally Raid products for the Honda CB500. They have the kits and the parts and accessories. You can turn the CB500, the Honda, into the lightest, lowest seat height, dirt-capable twin-cylinder adventure bike on the market. They have suspension and wheels and parts and all the upgrades for the Honda CB500 as well. And that's exclusive. Giant Loop distributes that exclusively for North America. They also have the um, adventure-proof packing system. Now, this is the bags they make. They design. Uh, they, they do everything themselves. Uh, modular customized bag um, and gear for uh, enduro bikes and adventure touring bikes, all of them. You can sort of mix and match to what your desires are and what your plans are for the bags that you're buying. So check them out at giantloopmoto.com. That's giantloopmoto.com. And when you're going to buy something, make sure you use the promo code ARR. That promo code will get you free shipping anywhere in the U.S. So giantloopmoto.com and the promo code is ARR. And of course, you know, that means Adventure Rider Radio. And now back to Matt Danielson from the Motorcycle Law Group. So we've got... We've got to get our names of witnesses. We've got keep our mouths shut. Don't talk until you've had time to, to calm down, get checked, reflect, and, and, and likely speak to someone. What else? Photographs. Um, if, you can, if you can take them, if you are injured and you can't, have somebody else take them. Uh, but getting photographs uh, can be very, very helpful. Um, especially when there is going to be a question over, you know, what lane did the accident take place in, uh, you know, what sort of damage there was. A, a lot of times we get the, you know, what lane did it take place in. Um, and so getting photographs of the vehicles where they came to rest prior to them being moved can be very helpful. Um, getting picture of the debris, uh, parts of the motorcycle that came off in the crash or parts of the automobile that came off, um, that can be helpful. Uh, now keep in mind, uh, the, the photographs have to have context. I will get pictures. I will get people that will come up and, uh, take a photograph and here, here's a picture of, you know, the, uh, the, the, the foot peg. Yep. That's a foot peg. I have no idea where it's sitting, but that's definitely a foot peg get the pictures from away so I can see where is that foot peg sitting in relation to the other vehicles, the, the roadway and, and so forth. Um, so, and nowadays with everyone having a camera in their phone, you know, it makes it easy. We used to tell people to carry those little disposable cameras, but now everyone's got cameras on their phone. So, um, you know, even, even taking a video of, of, of the entire area can be very, very helpful. Well, that's exactly what brings me to this question that I'm just going to interject here is with cameras being so prolific, everyone's got one, but everyone's also connected to the Internet. And I have seen plenty of look what just happened photos. How do you feel about that? How do I feel about them being posted on uh, social media? Um, Don't do it. Uh, As a matter of fact, as a general rule, 
don't talk about your accident on social media. If you just want to tell people I was in an accident going to the hospital, fine, but don't say anything past that. Um, because the big thing that, uh, the insurance company is doing now is they're trolling social media. They're looking for, when they get a, when they get a claim, they're going to start looking you up. They're going to find out what kind of things you're posting. Uh, not only, so you may have a certain sense of humor that your friends understand, uh, but the insurance company doesn't necessarily understand it, and neither do the jurors who may one day be seeing those posts. Um, so if you're uh, joking around about the accident on, fa- on, on social media uh, or making comments that makes it look like it was not as bad as actually it really was, that's going to be used against you. And you know, you may know what you mean or how you mean it when you post it, but you have no control over how somebody else takes it. Uh, so the best thing to do is stay off social media when it comes to your accident. And the fact is that, back to what we were talking about earlier, is that the insurance company, they're not there to look at this and say, hey, you know, that this guy seems like a good guy or this woman, she seems really cool, you know, and I, I get where she's coming from, where she's saying that she didn't really mean that. That's not what they're about. They're about trying to find ways to stop paying money. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 and the first place, I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting at a deposition where they're taking my client's statement under oath and I'm doing the same to their insured. Um, and, and photographs are coming out from my client's social media that have nothing to do with the accident and they're being asked about them. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do the same thing when I get a, when I get a list of jurors, I know who my, uh, jury pool is going to be. I have a person here on my staff that immediately starts going through social media and get me all the information they can on my jurors. Okay, mouth shut, photos, what's next? Actually, those are, uh, keep your mouth shut, photographs, getting names and addresses of any witnesses, making sure you get checked out by the doctor, and then the number five is call a trusted lawyer. I want to point out, I am not saying hire a lawyer, (laughs) but I am saying call a trusted attorney, uh, someone that's not going to charge you just to speak to you. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times people call me up and I tell them in the end, they don't really need to hire a lawyer. They're going to be okay to do this on their own. Of course, if they, if they want to, they can, but this is one that they can handle on their own, but it gives them someone to talk to, someone to go through everything, make sure that you're not missing anything. At least talk to somebody that you trust. Those are the five things I suggest to everybody. Now, this is sort of probably out of your, your comfort zone, possibly, but what about out-of-country accidents? I know that's a, it's a completely different thing, but let's say you, you know, you ride up to Canada or, or maybe, say, Mexico, and you find yourself in an accident. Do you have any suggestions for that? Well, do you mean let's assume that you went up and took a trip and rode the Cabot Trail and you were coming back and about 10 miles from the border of the United States, one of your buddies rear-ended you in Canada? Did Does that, that seem a little specific? <laughs> <laughs> this sounds more like a story than, 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 a, than, a, than a suggestion here. Yeah, yes, it did happen, and I have the scars to prove it. Um, <laughs> it was actually pretty funny. Uh, I'm getting ready to take off, and I, I kind of creeped up to look at the traffic and, and rob a guy who I ride with. All of a sudden, I just feel this impact. We bo- I go over, and immediately from behind me, I hear, My bad! I turn around and there's, you know, Rob laying on the side of the road and I'm lying there. No one was really hurt. Uh, but that's a really good question. But you didn't sue him then? Um, no, but I certainly would have <laughs> had the need been there. Um, that, that would not have been a problem at all. 
one of the things to keep in mind when you're in another country is that your rules don't follow you necessarily into that other country. Uh, so I always tell my, my, my American friends here, never forget that the Constitution doesn't follow you across the border. Um, and one of the first things you want to make sure that you do uh, if you're going to travel outside the country is contact your insurance company first uh, and get a rider to go into that other country. Um, here in the United States, and I would imagine it would be the same in Canada, uh, you're, you're, you have insurance on your bike. I'm sure it covers you in all the provinces of Canada. Um, but it's not necessarily going to cover you once you leave into another country. So when I went to do the trip to Nova Scotia and do the Cabot Trail, uh, I called my insurance company, let them know when I was leaving, let them know when I uh, um, expected to cross the border, when I expected to get back, and got a rider to take all my insurance coverages and uh, protect me while I was in Canada. Um, Jim has done several rides to Mexico, and he's done the same thing there. Um, that benefits you by not only giving you that protection, but that pro you're going to get the same protection in from an insurance standpoint uh, in in the other country as you would in yours because that uh, ins insurance policy is really a contract between you and your insurance company saying if X happens, you will do Y. Um, now, besides that, um, obviously, if you get uh, – from the standpoint of besides the insurance, you're now in another country and, and, and you've been in an accident. Um, I would highly suggest that you find out what your rights are in that country prior to riding there. Um, because uh, you, you, you don't have the right to say no to law enforcement in many other countries. <laughs> in some, you're, abs you're under an absolute duty to, to, to talk to them. Um, and the other problem is, obviously, it's kind of hard for you to um, give a statement um, and, and know what, what the legal impact of that statement is when you don't even understand what the laws of that country are. So um, definitely find out what they are. Because some countries have rules that make you guilty until you prove your innocence. I mean, so that uh, that is a completely different ball game than having something happen in the United States or even Canada. Uh, yes, um, Jim, my uh, my riding partner, he he really, really, really wants to ride all the way down through Argentina. Um, and I'm going to guess, while I cannot say for sure, I'm going to guess that's going to take him through quite a few countries that don't have the same view of due process that the United States or Canada do. So I would certainly want to know what the rules are there. Um, could, I couldn't imagine spending a bunch of time in a Bolivian jail. As a lawyer, does it, does it make you a little paranoid? You know, you, when you, the thought of doing something like that, I mean, if you were planning to go to South America, you're going to do Ushuaia, um, would you get a little hung up on the fact that all these countries have different laws and actually go through the work of researching them or would you sort of wing it? Um, no, I, 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 I probably wouldn't just wing it. Um, knowing I, I would, I would want to know what the general rules are going down there. I mean, actually I do that. I suggest that to people when you're traveling through States. Um, when I went across country, uh, I went AMA website and I found out what are the rules of each state that I was passing through with regard to motorcycles. I wanted to know which States 
might I not be able to ride two abreast, which now I, I know by heart which states require helmets and which don't. So that wasn't an issue. Um, but, you know, it's good to go on and find out. The other thing is, let's say there's a lot of motorcyclists that are also uh, concealed weapon carriers. Find out what the rules are about carrying a weapon through each state you go through. You guys at the Motorcycle Law Group have a, have a couple of interesting things there for riders, even if you don't have anything to do with an accident. One of them was the prepared rider kit, and the other is the app. Tell us about this rider kit to begin with. Um, the prepared rider kit was a way of giving people just kind of one place they could go to prepare for an accident, which sounds horrible. Um, and by that, you know, there's, it's a lot easier if you have everything together that you need, uh, prior to the accident happening, because after the accident happens, is a real bad time to have to go around collecting everything. Um, and so we wanted to give people the information they needed, um, as well as, um, telling them what it is, what is the information they should gather and how should they repair. Um, so if you go under our website, motorcyclelawgroup.com, you can go to the prepare rider kit. Um, and it will give, uh, um, certain documents that you can download, uh, give you uh, suggestions, uh, of, you know, what information to pull together and who to share it with. So that if something happens, that person, uh, is able to, to help make certain decisions for you. I mean, let's face it. Um, a lot of times the people that are hiring us aren't the motorcyclist. It's the family of the motorcyclist because the motorcyclist is incapacitated. Um, they're recovering in the hospital. Um, and sometimes the motorcyclist isn't able to speak or make decisions for themselves. Uh, so it's always good to prepare to have a person designated who can do that for you. Uh, give them the information such as your health information, uh, your insurance information, the name of the attorney that you would like to be contacted if need be, um, and have all of those things in place before the accident takes place so that it, once it does happen, uh, then then your designee can get the the ball rolling quickly for you. And Matt, that's exactly why we were interested in, in having you come on the show. I mean, we hope that that no one who listens to this ever needs to speak with you. <laughs> but it's when you have one of those things happen that you, in hindsight, you stand there and you think, oh, geez, I, I wish I had have done this. Well, hearing this and, and getting prepared in advance, um, at, at least even in a small way, can make a huge difference if the, you know, the unfortunate ever does happen. So I, I think it's really important. Uh, yeah, it, 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 I always tell people the same thing when I'm, when I'm at events and someone picks up my card or whatnot, I will tell them, look, glad you have it. Hope you don't need it. Nobody calls me when they're having a good day. Um, but, uh, but, but being prepared can make it so much easier. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, that I've run into several times is the motorcyclist that gets in an accident and I'll have a loved one, be it girlfriend. Uh, I've even haven't had it happen with husbands and wives uh, where they say, well, the first thing we need to do is get a power of attorney done uh, because I need to be able to do certain things for him like, you know, pay his bills, you know, make certain payments, be able to make certain decisions for him. Well, once the person's incapacitated, it's too late for that because a power of attorney is something that one person gives to another freely. Uh, they, they, they say, Hey, if something ever happens to me, you now have the power to do X, Y, and Z for me. So my wife and I, uh, we have power of attorneys for each other at home. So if something happens, it's, it's done. I can act for her. She can act for me. I always got someone that can make decisions for me. And I highly suggest that 
everybody have a trusted person that can do that for them. Is that referred to as a living will as well? Um, th- technically, they are two different things, um, but they can do the same thing. Um, uh, my power of attorney gives my wife the right also to make medical decisions for me, including life-ending decisions, if need be. Clearly something that um, that is well worth thinking about in advance, although somewhat morbid. I mean, that sort of stuff always is, but, but it, you know, you hope you, you never have to deal with it. But like I say, getting it done in advance, I think, will make all the, all the difference. One of the other things on here, Matt, is um, the app, which I thought was really neat because we did talk about the fact that everyone has a camera. Everyone's carrying a phone, almost everyone. There's a, there's a few people I can think of <laughs> that don't carry a phone with them all the time, but most people do. You guys at the Motorcycle Law Group, I guess it's just you or whether it's Tom McGrath or the whole group of you, have put together an app to have on your phone just for the, the, in the event of an accident. Correct. Um, kind of a one, 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 one stop place to be able to go, uh, and put the information that you need, be it putting in uh, witness information, storing photographs, uh, storing, uh, the, the, the types of documents you made, be it registration, health insurance card, that sort of thing. Um, you can call a cab on it if you need be in order to get a ride home. You can call us directly at that point, um, whatever time it is. And, and, and trust me, people do that because if it's, uh, if it's uh, three in the morning and you get in an accident and uh, you hit that app and make the phone call and it goes to us and, and you leave a message, my cell phone rings next to my bed and I wake up and call you. I see a screenshot here from the app and, and the first thing is call us now, then call 911 and accident tip checklist. That could be really handy because there's something about when something goes wrong to be able to go to your paperwork or your checklist and say, okay, this is what I need to do. Oh, yeah. As you well know, it's one thing for someone to say, what do I need to do in in casual conversation and be able to tick them right off. It's another thing to do it while you're, you know, your blood's pumping and they're taking you to the hospital and, and, and you know that you've got a fractured leg. Now what do I do? Just so for people will know on that app, it's called the MLG app, and it's downloadable for uh, Apple and Android devices. It's, it certainly it seems like something that would be worthwhile just putting on your phone there because it's it's got it all lined up, and in the event that you do run into something and and uh, a problem, you've got it all at your fingertips. And it's free. Oh, yes, and it's free. I forgot to say that. Yep, that's right. I want to talk for a minute about your lobby work, the, the place where you waste your money um, in, in, the name, <laughs> in the name of other riders. <laughs> but there's some really interesting stuff in here that I think p- most people don't think about or don't realize that um, that is happening. And again, I want to remind people that, you know, this may be, you know, we may be talking about the United States here, but this stuff is, is something that you find uh, things in society, I think, break out at certain time periods. And like you, you'd mentioned as well. I mean, if it's happening one place, it's going to happen or very likely could happen in your own backyard. And one of the things that you'd listed on, on something you wrote that, that I read was working to prevent motorcyclists from being excluded from public parking lots. I mean, I find that just shocking that, that those sorts of things going on go on. You'd mentioned the HOV. Um, you also talk about um, about going after ethanol blends. Give us a little rundown on some of that thing, some of those things that you've covered. 
Um, uh, you know, it, and, and real quick while I'm thinking of it, you know, see, it is the United States. Yes. Uh, however, uh, through the work with Motorcycle Riders Foundation, um, there's actually a woman I come across on a regular basis uh, that represents uh, a Canadian motorcyclists, kind of doing the same sort of lobbying stuff up there in Canada. And so she always comes down and shares what's going on in Canada with us and kind of picks up what's going on here. So that's always that's always interesting. Um, you know, people don't think uh, – what I always hear people say is, you know, when are they going to do this or why did they do that? Or, you know, it's not just them. It's us sitting around and allowing them to do it. Um, and, um, there's a lot of things that have gone on legislatively, uh, by, you know, motorcyclists rolling up their sleeves and, and working at various state houses or working up the Capitol, uh, to make riding better for, for everyone. Um, there, uh, go to the, Go to the parking lot. The, the motorcycles being banned from parking lots and parking garages. Um, that was being done on a routine basis uh, here in 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 many states. Um, here in Virginia, uh, state that I cover, um, we you know we would have many public parking garages that motorcyclists couldn't go into, and uh, they couldn't go in there because the uh, the Operators of the parking garages said it was dangerous because, you know, the, the bar might come down and hit the motorcyclist. Well, if you think about it, uh, motorcyclists pay their taxes um, to build these structures that are being operated and, and constructed with public funding, yet they're barred from it. And uh, we were able to get legislation passed that prohibited that. So if it is it is a parking lot, roadway, transportation um uh, facility of any type that is either constructed uh, or operated in any way with public money, um, then no law or regulation may be made that would prohibit motorcyclists from using it. Um, which, which is bizarre, really, if you think about it. That's like saying, you know, motorcyclists can't use this road because the bridge is, is set up in a way that uh, motorcyclists could, you know, have a, have a problem crossing it, whatever the reason, which is crazy because when it comes to designing these things, like you said about the, the parking lot, it's just a matter of someone saying, hey, you need to include this, just like you need to include wheelchair access for things nowadays. It just has to be included in the design. It's not like it's something that, that is impossible. No, and actually we had that put into that statute. It said in, in, in designing and constructing new transportation facilities that they have to take in consideration motorcyclists in doing so. But it takes someone to get up and push for that because, like you said, it's, it's a lot of times it's people sitting back and thinking, well, okay, well, I won't worry about it. Let somebody else deal with it. But unless somebody does stand up and go in there and fight for those silly little things in some cases, I think, um, you end up pulling up one day and finding, oh, I'm not welcome here. Absolutely. Um, and it is so critical that it, it is critical to be up there. If what many people do think are silly little things. Um, well, they're not. Uh, because if you just let them pile up and let them pile up, they can seriously affect uh, your ability to you know, ride freely throughout your community. The nice thing is by being up there for all these so-called silly little things, um, the legislature starts seeing you. You're working with them on a regular basis. They understand that you are there watching what they are doing. Um, and we've gotten to the point uh, here that um, if some constituent or someone comes to a legislator legislator um, about passing a law that has anything to do with motorcycling, they actually call us. 
what do you think about this? Um, and, and, and get our opinion. Now, they don't do that because they're afraid of us, uh, but they do that because we've built relationships with them. We, we've been working up there so long that now they understand, hey, here's, here's some folks that know more about this than me. Let me go talk to them about it. Um, and it's just not motorcycling. I mean, you know, if someone comes to a legislator about a bill that has to do with medicine, then the people that they've been working with that, they're going to go to because they know more about it. But the key is staying up there, um, staying on top of the issues, be and 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 being in front of these legislators on a regular basis, so that you can build those relationships um, to keep bad legislation from coming down and uh, to promote good legislation. It's it's really easy to sit back and say, well, I just want to ride, you know, I don't want to go through the hassle of chasing this stuff down. But I, I think it's so important that we do pay attention to what's going on and we do make our voices heard, especially nowadays. I think things I, as population increases, I'm not quite sure what it is, but that's sort of my feeling on it, is that population increases. There's more people pushing for their agenda. And it's not that they're doing something against us as riders or against anyone for that matter. It's just you go with your agenda. And unless someone comes and says, hey, you know, I'm over here, too, you don't really know they're there. No, and it, it, and I think you're right, and I think it goes that way for any segment. It just happened to be that my segment, the the, the one that I identify with, is is the motorcycling segment, and uh, you know, just like the, you know, the people that are interested in in, in in firearms, or the people that are interested in controlling firearms, and there's people who have every bit of interest. Mine happens to fall in, and the people I work with, uh, protecting the rights of motorcyclists and and our ability to continue to make choices for ourselves and ride free through uh, the United States. And actually now that I'm working with Canadians, Canada. <laughs> One of the other things that I'd mentioned is about you working to prohibit the, the use of higher ethanol blends at the pump. Can we talk about that for a minute? Because I think this is something that, that um, isn't quite clear. I think a lot of people understand that ethanol is supposed to be bad for motorcycles, but they don't even understand why. Yeah. Um, here's what, um, you go fill up at the pumps. Um, probably everybody has seen the signs that say that you know gasoline can carry up to 10% ethanol. Uh, ethanol is a biofuel. It comes from corn. Um, the corn growers love ethanol. Um, and if you've ever ridden through the Midwest of Virginia, of the United, not Virginia, of, of the United States, we got a lot of corn. So uh, there has been a push in the interest of so-called the interest of, of uh, getting away from, from oil, um, increasing the use of ethanol. Uh, the problem is that uh, their ethanol, there are people that disagree with this, uh, but the Motorcycle uh, Council has come out and, 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 and agreed with this. Um, ethanol can be harmful to small engines. Um, and, and the reason for that is, uh, that ethanol tends to retain moisture so you can get more water that can cause problems, uh, for small engines. Um, so, uh, there was a, there is a push to actually, and the EPA had okayed moving the, uh, from what's called E10, meaning fuel made with 10% ethanol to E15, meaning 15% ethanol. That doesn't sound like a lot when you think about it that way, except think about it another way. They're talking about increasing the amount of ethanol in the fuel by 50%. Um, 
And finally, the EPA even came out and agreed, okay, um, well, motorcycles can't use it. Motors, you're not allowed to put it in your, in, your, in your motorcycle. Well, the problem there is um, how many people are really closely reading the pump when they pull up? <laughs> um, or even if you do that, you got a motorcycle that's got like a, what, a three-gallon tank. And he goes up, and I've just pumped a bunch of E15 into my into my car, into my into my truck, and you switch over. You're, you're reading your labels real carefully, and you switch over, and you stick the hose in, um, and 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 push the E10 button. Well, you're getting a good shot of your E15 in your tank prior to getting to your E10. Um, it's whatever's so, in the hose from the absolutely from the, switch. Yep. The, resi- the, the the residual that's there. Um, and, and so the, the, the MRF's position has continued to be that let's hold off on this until we understand the full effects of the higher ethanol blends uh, in, in, in smaller engines. Um, because, I mean, the, the EPA's answer, believe it or not, was really, well, we'll just make it illegal for you guys to use it in motorcycles which kind of seems like a dumb way of handling that. Um, when I was in Nebraska, I actually almost put E85 in my motorcycle. Wow. I didn't realize that they even had E85. I didn't realize they had E85 either until I stuck the hose in. And uh, Jeff Jeff Henney, who was riding with me, who at the time was the uh, lobbyist for the Motorcycle Riders Foundation, said, whoa, 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 dude, read. Look at that. And I turned around and said, <laughs> E85. I was like, holy crap, that probably wouldn't have done me any good. Well, and also, I mean, you know, it's going to come down to supply and demand. How many motorcycles are going into the gas station? Should they bother carrying the the lower grade or lower ethanol blend? Or will they just carry the higher one and say, oh, you can't fill up here? Well, uh, and, well, how about uh, you're riding across an area where there's just not a whole lot of uh, pumps and... Um, uh, you are low, and there's only one gas station in the area, and what, they all got high ethanol blends? So now you're restricted. I mean, what do you do? Either pump the higher ethanol blend in your bike or no fuel? So did you end up getting them to change that back and, and stay with the 10%? Um, no. Uh, this is an ongoing matter. Um, there, uh, there are several bills in Congress right now uh, that would halt the the production of these higher blends until they can uh, until they can be studied further. Um, there was at one point uh, an, uh, at one point the talk was from um, Washington that the funding uh, in order to create or to continue producing these higher blends, to continue giving subsidies to do it, uh, was going to be pulled. Um, I don't believe that's the case anymore. So this is this is an ongoing struggle that we're having right now. Really, you're fighting against the ethanol producers, aren't you? I mean, they're in the business of producing it, and they want to produce more. Correct. Oh, uh, there are uh, the, the corn producers will swear to you that uh, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that higher ethanol blends are bad for smaller engines. Um, you know, go back 40 years and slap uh, tobacco industry on their lapel and 
kind of getting the same thing. <laughs> so with this, this uh, the corn producers pushing or the ethanol producers pushing to, to get uh, a higher percentage in there, um, I understand that they're also subsidized by the government to produce ethanol. So you're sort of fighting the government in there as well. Correct. Absolutely. That's got to be quite a push. It can get it, it. It can get difficult, and believe it or not, um, Washington D.C. is not the easiest place to um, uh, to, to to start change. <laughs> I would never imagine that. I know. I know you find that shocking. <laughs> Do you know what effects the ethanol has? Can you, Can you talk more about the actual effects that it's supposed to have on small engines? No, I, I, I'm actually, believe it or not, not the most mechanically inclined person in the world for loving bikes as much as I do. Uh, I always say that I, uh, I, I, however, I ride with people who are to make mm-hmm. sure that if something goes wrong, um, I, I'm, I'm taken care of. Um, what the, the, the folks that I have spoken with uh, tell me that a lot of it comes with the way that ethanol tends to retain and hold water and create uh, more of water buildup within the engine. Well, the website is MotorcycleLawGroup.com, and I think there's a the, that app is definitely worthwhile checking out, as is the uh, your your prepared rider kit. So I, I think it's worthwhile to to drop by, and I think your name and and your information is certainly good to have tucked in in a rider's wallet while they're out there. Matt, thanks very much for taking the time. Hey, thank you very much. And that was Matt Danielson from the Motorcycle Law Group in Richmond, Virginia. You can find them by looking for the MotorcycleLawGroup.com. And of course, check our show notes for this episode. Stay with us because in a few minutes, we're going to talk with Brett Tax from PSSOR, Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, for our first Rider Skills segment. Well, if you're sitting at your computer, this is what I want you to do. www.arrowstitch.com forward slash A-R-R. That forward slash A-R-R is important. So Aerostitch is A-E-R-O-S-T-I-C-H dot com forward slash A-R-R. And the reason you're going to do forward slash A-R-R is you will get 10% off on your first order. Or if you're a repeat customer, you're going to get free shipping on your next order. So make sure you do that forward slash A-R-R. And they also know it comes from us. So the first thing I think you should do is order their catalog. I, I think you you pay $5 for it, and then that $5 is taken off your next order. But it is well worth it. This thing is quite a thick catalog, and it's got all kinds of information in here. It, it's really neat because it not only has the products in here that they sell, um, the products they make, and then the other products they sell from other people, but it also has a, a bunch of added pieces in here. I, I told you before about the, uh, they've got in here, they've got a jacket called the Darien. They've got the explanation of what the Darien is and what the Darien gap is. Same goes for combat. Uh, touring boots. They've got a, a brief history written here of the boot. And it's, it's quite interesting information. And I think the, the nice thing about the catalog is that when you go through it, it gives you ideas that you probably haven't had before because I see a lot of things, a lot of products in here that I didn't even know existed before. So it's pretty interesting to go through and it gets you thinking of the possibilities, the things that you can do. And it's nice dealing with Aerostitch. You know you're dealing with a rock-solid company. This is a company that cares about riders. I've told you before about their, their R3 Roadcrafter suit offer that they have where you, you buy the Roadcrafter R3 suit, you use it for 30 days, and they're saying if you don't ride more in that 30 days, then you can return it and get your money back, no questions asked. That's a bold offer because this is an expensive product they're having you go out and ride with for a month. But that's Aerostitch. That's Aerostitch quality. And the things that I've bought from them over the years uh, have been 
incredibly pleased with. And just you buy one thing from them and you'll see the quality right off the bat. And uh, it, that's the quality you find throughout the company. So drop by their website, www.arrowstitch.com forward slash ARR. And anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Now, for our first rider skills segment, we've got Brett Tax from PSSOR or Puget Sound Safety Off Road. Well, we're starting a special segment with this episode. We have uh, adventure motorcycle rider trainer Brett Tax from Puget Sound Safety Off Road who is going to come on to our show about once, I think every three weeks or so, and talk to us about learning to ride our motorcycles better, about learning to improve our skill sets. And this is really exciting because we're going to learn a lot of stuff here, and I'm really stoked about it myself because uh, I love to learn to ride better. And I think that's one of the things with motorcycles is that I think one of the appeals, at least in my mind, is that no matter how good you are, there's still more to learn. And and I mean, I think that's part of the, the excitement of it. Brett, I'm so pleased to have you here on Adventure Rider Radio. Welcome back. I am so glad to be back and really excited to share some information and help people's uh, experiences out there ride and be better than they already are. Now, today what we're starting with is threshold detection. So what is threshold detection? Well, simply threshold detection to me is figuring out that your bike's about to fall down before it actually falls down. It's that time just before the front tire slips. It's the time just before the back tire spins out. It's that moment just before both tires slip sideways and you fall down. And it's one of those key elements to help keep us safe as adventure riders and certainly improves the the fun factor when we're not picking our bike up all the time. And so this is traction, not just forward and back. This is side to side. This is everything to do with your tires slipping. Uh, that's exactly it. Anytime the bike's going to slip or fall and threshold to me is the threshold is the point when things kind of go out of control. It doesn't mean in the off-road world to me, a little bit of slip isn't bad. The bike is supposed to move and it's supposed to have slip. What it's not to do is supposed to slip out from underneath you or dig a big hole and get a stuck someplace like on a hill or on a beach. So when you're teaching this, how do you explain it to people? They arrive with their motorcycles. Um, how, how do you run them through it and teach them what you're talking about? Well, one of the first things we do is whether it's in our adventure camps or whether it's during one of our, our actual tours, training tours, is we take the riders out to some place where we can see them actually ride. And we, we have them go out and, and just kind of warm up themselves and warm up their bikes. And as instructors, as guides, we get to watch the riders and see where they're at. Um, the other thing we do is that allows them as riders to start figuring out what the traction is for the day. Are we in a muddy field? Are we in soft grass? Are we in sand? And we can see how they react, how quickly they react. And when they come back, we're able to change and give them some tools, change how they sit on the bike, where they place their feet, where they move their weight on the motorcycle. We send them back out and they can feel the difference in how stable the bike is and how it slips and where it doesn't slip. And then we can bring them back in again and then give them more skill sets on throttle and clutch and the fine motor skills needed to continually improve their ability to manage traction. But threshold detection itself often means they fall down first. And that's why a training environment is so ideal to learn this particular skill set. 
Well, you were mentioning before when we've talked about this, the, the difference between learning this on a big bike versus a small bike and the sort of the pros and cons of each. Talk about that. So I often, we, we have a lot of people that come down and they bring down their dual sport or their adventure bike and they'll take one of our, our classes and they'll have a great time and they'll say they learned a lot, but they'll struggle with the fact that they're on a 600 pound bike that they have a lot of money invested into. And we'll recommend they come back and try the school on one of the school bikes. And we do the same thing for street riders, uh, ironically, and that's a whole different subject. But when they come back on the smaller bike, it allows them to not be as fatigued because they're not dealing with all the weight. It reduces the fear factor of injury and of damaging something very expensive. And the most important thing is that you can make mistakes on a small bike and recover much more quickly. And so you'll feel the front end slip and you can kind of steer the bike and get it from falling down. And if it does fall down, it's not a big deal. You pick it back up and you keep going. The other thing a small bike does is because they generally have much, much better tires than what's even available for any adventure bike, they have actual dirt bike knobbies, is that they can let the bike lean in deeper, they can they can put it into a berm or into a corner edge, and they can feel what, what real grip feels like. And when they get into those extreme situations and then feel slip or then have the bike slip out, they, the brain starts accumulating all those little senses that occurred, the sounds, the feelings, the sensation, what the bike did underneath them just before it fell. And then the next time it, it can pick up on those a little quicker. I, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I would much rather learn on a small bike than a big bike just because when it goes down, the thought of picking it up is, you know, you, and you mentioned fatigue, which I didn't think of when I asked the question, but yeah, I mean, you pick your bike up just a, a couple of times, you're 600 or, or 800 and um, wow, you, it's amazing how fast you get tired doing it. But there has to be a transition period too. We talked about the learning on the small bike and then taking those skills to transition them to the heavy bike. Yeah, and, and just like there's so many of these great advantages of a small bike uh, because it allows you to to really understand that the smallest body movement on the bike, you can feel much more dramatic effect because it's such a lighter bike, 230 pounds instead of, like you said, maybe five 600 pounds. It's a catch-22. The disadvantages are the same as the advantages. Because I have a very high traction tire in the dirt with the knobbies, that means that I can get away with things that I can't get away with normally. Because the bike is light, and when I do make an error or I do find that that limit of traction, I can often recover just because the the weight of the bike, or I can dab and pick the bike up. With a big bike, I cannot do that. And so there is there does have to be a transition where you go back from the small bike back to the big bike. And and often I think we see the riders that gain the most are that do it exactly in that fashion. They come out and they do something on a large bike and they discover exactly how challenging it can be. Then they come back on the small bikes and they polish those skills that they realize they were lacking. And because it gives them focus and purpose, they know why it matters now. And then they come back on the big bike and they go, okay, now that I have it, I can feel it. And they can tell what the difference is between the first time they come out and the last time. And that's pretty common for us to have riders come back to us for, for the, the dirt school and to do the adventure camps and then ultimately to do the tours with us, the training tours. 
And and the difference between the off-road riding and the adventure riding, the real big difference in my mind is that when you're riding an off-road motorcycle, there, it's there's just so much more forgiving. And especially when it comes to speed, a lot of what you do with an off-road bike is speed. You know, you're you're going through areas much quicker. So a lot of it's to do with that that uh, higher speed and momentum. Whereas a lot of the technical things we do with the adventure bike is very slow due to its size. They're just not meant to go that fast. Well, not only are they not meant to go that fast, but just the sheer mass of the bike pounding against uh, rocks and boulders and, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of weight there and you'll cause a lot of damage to the bikes. Uh, a couple, what is it, uh, about two years ago, before I went to South America on my, my 800, I took it out to a race called the Desert 100 in Eastern Washington. And it's a hundred mile race for off-road bikes. Well, they opened up a class for the adventure bikes and I basically got dared to race. So I took my 800 out and I raced the bike and it was a very expensive endeavor and I did okay, but it was a ton of work. And even going as fast as I could on an 800, I was getting passed you know, left and right by every class of rider out there on an actual dirt bike. So you're absolutely correct in the fact that in all relative considerations, the adventure bikes are going to be going much slower in those technical off-road areas than than a dirt bike would be. So it's probably important that people keep that in mind, right, when they're doing this, is that we're, we're really talking about a lot of low-speed things. Absolutely. Um, here's the, uh, the other side of this whole factor. We, a few years back, we actually revised our dirt bike curricula for trail riders and for dual sport riders. And we had already developed the adventure program over many, many years. And when we redeveloped the dirt rider stuff, we actually looked to the adventure rider program for how to develop those skills for the dirt. Because we found that when we taught those low speed skill developments, when we taught these things that were designed to reduce impact of the motorcycle, to reduce fatigue of the rider, and that focused more on precision than it did speed and momentum, that it actually crossed over to dirt riders and made them much, much more skilled riders, especially for those guys that were endurance racers or hair scramble riders. Let's look at the threshold detection then. How does a, a person go out and learn this? Excellent. So what I'm going to recommend is, you know, obviously uh, I would love to have your reader, all your listeners come out and, and hang out with me. But if they were to take their bike out, one of the ways to do this is start from the, the lowest risk um, kind of environment you can come up with, which is not moving. And what I would say is go to a hill something that's dirt or sand or even grass and put the bike towards the bottom of the hill and start to just slowly accelerate up the hill. And you'll find at some point you're probably going to break traction. If you don't, you were low enough on the hill that there wasn't a threshold that was, that was necessary to detect. So go back down the hill and go up a little bit harder so you're on a steeper portion of it. Stop the motorcycle and then start from that point and ride up the hill. At some point, you'll end up at a steep enough part where it's very difficult to roll the throttle on and not have the back tires start to spin. That's where that, that initial threshold is. That's when the spin is. And you want to feel what the bike feels like just prior to that tire breaking free. And then, of course, you know, we want to develop the where to put your body and the clutch and the throttle so that it doesn't spin so that you can get out of that situation. But that's a great way to learn how to break traction, because even if it does spin, you're probably planted pretty well. And if you tip over, it's not a big deal. You're not moving. And how do you manage the spin? That's where we come into 
using clutch. At high speed, it's the throttle that controls our speed, and at low speed, it's the clutch. And whether you look at traction control, which uh, like the modern electronic traction controls, what they do is they actually bleed power out of the motor so that the tire doesn't spin. When you look at like a recluse system, the auto clutches, what they do is they're centrifugally driven. So they allow slippage in the clutch until it has enough traction to engage fully. Both of those still don't work as well as the human does, but we essentially want to create the same environment. So when you start to feel that tire spin or just prior to the spin, what you'll generally do is actually increase throttle, but manage the clutch and hold it just prior to the spin. If you hold it there, often you'll start just to start to creep out of the, the location you are. And then as the bike starts to increase speed, you can slowly increase the, the throttle and, and increase the amount of clutch engagement you actually have. What generally happens when we watch riders is they engage the clutch way too quickly. The bike starts to move, they get excited, they let the clutch out and they go for the throttle and they break traction again. And they have to realize they may end up creeping all the way up the hill and never actually fully engage the clutch at all. So this is interesting because I think a lot of people who haven't done this find it a little unnerving, the whole slipping the clutch thing. So to be clear, I mean, we're dealing mostly, and not always, but mostly with, with wet clutches, which are a little bit more forgiving than a dry clutch. Um, but we're slipping the clutch. That's what we're doing. Yeah, and... And I, I think you have a good valid point there. And for those that aren't aware of what a dry clutch is or a wet clutch is, a dry clutch, and I know you know this, but for your listeners, a dry clutch is like in an automobile where it's just, it's that. It's just a fiber plate with big chunks of metal that squeeze it together until the power transfers all the way through. A wet clutch in a motorcycle, most modern motorcycles, are multi-plates. There's nine uh, nine plates in there that are all fibrous and they're squished in between these little metal plates and they're bathed in the motor oil. This is one of the reasons why motor oil is such a topic for motorcyclists as well. But they're bathed in this oil, which allows some lubrication so they don't damage the clutches, but also because the oil's there, it can dissipate heat. So the oil's actually pulling heat away from those clutch plates so we don't burn them up. They are designed to be able to do this sort of slipping work or clutch work, friction zone, gray zone, whatever anybody wants to call it where you slip the clutch to get up and out of these situations. And without getting too technical, that's sort of what you find in an automatic transmission. All your clutch packs and automatic transmission for a car are set up like that. They do have a torque converter, which allows the maximum amount of slip, but they're set up that way as well to allow the smooth shifting that you get with an automatic transmission. And that's why people find automatics easier, at least for vehicles, to drive in off-road situations than they do standards, because we have a tendency with a standard to get off that clutch. And if I'm understanding you correctly, Brett, what you're saying is that clutch is not something that we either turn on or off. That's part of our control. We're always with that clutch. Anytime we're in a technical situation or low speed, that clutch is your primary control to power to the back wheel. And again, referring back to Recluse that builds auto clutches, which dominate in in many of the different off-road classes for motorcycling uh you know arena cross and things um those clutches are designed as a centrifugal clutch so when the rpms drop down out of the motor they actually begin disengaging and they're designed to allow slip to to occur that also is why it makes them very very nice when you're first getting started in difficult situations because as you roll the throttle on the clutch automatically allows a certain amount of slip until the motor gets up to a certain RPM. Um, 
the disadvantage of that particular unit, not to call them the, the holy grail of things, because there's always a pro and a con, is that they're centrifugally driven. So if you were to take a large bike, for example, the, the 1190 KTM, uh, they're making a clutch for that. The F800 GS, they make a clutch for that. And this is an advertisement for them. But as they, they come up on these big boulders and the boulder kicks out from the back tire, the RPMs kick up and then the motor fully engages the clutch. And then as soon as it hits the ground, you have complete loss of, of traction and control. So we're back into using manual clutch control. So no matter what technology is out there currently, the rider is the most key factor to all of it. None, it's all there to help us. It's not there to, to cover for us. So the way to go, the way to do it is, is head out, like you said, and, and try this on a hill because it's the easiest spot to find that threshold to find it, to be able to break the traction and, and force yourself into a situation where you have to control it. Um, any other tips? Um, yeah, I, I definitely think the hill is the best place to go, especially since they don't have a uh, backup or an instructor or trainer there to kind of learn that detection. Um, the other thing they can do with that is to practice going down the hill and practice threshold detection with the front wheel and actually use the front brake. Many, many riders are terrified of using the front brake off-road. And I often hear people say, well, I ride off-road, I only use the rear brake. The rear brake is kind of like a sea anchor when you're off-road. And in the dirt world, we use the rear brake mostly for directional change. Um, dirt biking, you lock up the back end and you can spin the bike sideways, point to new direction and accelerate. The front brake is actually what causes us the, the most braking potential for off-road. So learning that threshold on the front wheels also a very critical aspect. So again, use that same hill and uh, go to the top, crest it at a very low speed. And as they come down to the bottom, see if they can come to a near stop. And then practice going down that hill each time, seeing if you can creep down and come to a complete stop each time. And because you're going at such a slow speed, when the front wheel begins to skid or slide, you'll be able to detect that the handlebars will turn on you just slightly. You can release the brake and roll down the hill without any incident. Um, the, the goal there is to not just release the brake, but to work towards a point where when that front end begins to slide, that you're actually able to bleed off just a little bit of brake, just enough to allow rotation so that you don't have slide, but you haven't given up braking. So actually using the front brake, just like you would use the clutch for acceleration. So you can actually use gray zone on both sides of that. So, Brett, let me ask you this, then. It, it's, it's really doing the same thing as, as ABS brakes. Um, why are ABS brakes not effective? Well, I, I think ABS weren't effective, but if you've ridden any of the, the most modern uh, current generation, 2015-16 bikes, the off-road ABS is extremely impressive. And even on the bike I'm currently on, uh, I'm on an old uh, 2014 Tiger and it's certainly not the latest generation ABS, and I very seldom turn it off when I'm off-road anymore. It does such a good job of detecting that. And in many situations, even the older ABS systems will actually work better than the riders. Uh, we'll, we have riders go out on basically street-biased adventure tires, and most all of them do much better with the ABS still engaged. So unless they're in an extreme situation, downhill, heavy gravel, it's good to know what this system is. It's there to assist you. Sometimes leaving it on is better, and you have to know what the bike can do to know when to turn it off and when to leave it on. So, of, of course, Brett, I know that as we talk through these things, this is just, you know, the tip of the iceberg sort of thing. It's certainly not going to replace taking a course, and, and nor do we want it to. But it's something that I, I would hope that will allow people to increase their skills, maybe their basic skills, or at least their understanding, so they can get more out of a course when they take it. 
yeah, the more the more you understand coming into training, the more you can take away from it. And the real advantage to professional training is the fact that you have a professional watching you. That what you think in your head you're doing isn't always what's actually occurring. So having somebody be able to identify key points that you might be missing is tremendously important. And the same reason why I take rider courses every year, even though this is my job, it's my profession, it's the only thing I do. It's interesting. I remember one time we were talking about that, that you had mentioned about um, videotaping yourself when you're when you're doing your training so you can see if you're actually doing what you think you're doing. And often I'm not. I do it when I teach in front of a classroom. I do it when I ride on a motorcycle. And just having other people watch me doesn't seem to help as much. So I'll, I'll actually videotape my riding or have somebody do that so I can coach and critique myself. And I'm often quite amazed at the things I'm doing or not doing. So having a skilled eye and a skilled trainer, there's just no substitute for that. Brett, that is a fantastic start for us. What are we looking at for the next episode? I think what we ought to talk about is an article I wrote some time ago called The Weightless Rider. And it's really just talking about where we put our body on the bike to manage traction and why we stand up. Where do we put our, our feet and where do we put our body and how do we lock our knees in? And what's the real purpose of that whole thing? It's not just watching people ride on a video or, or what they look like in the picture. There's more to it. So I would love to discuss that and share with your, your listeners uh, that particular skill development. Well, I certainly look forward to that. Brett, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to talking to you next time. And of course, that was Brett Tax from Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. You can find out more about Brett and the courses that he offers. And he's got quite a few of them there. He's got some uh, that are adventure trips as well as courses. Look at his website, www.pssor.com. Or you can drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and check the show notes from this episode. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Don't forget to drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Check out the show notes from this episode. Of course, you can download all of our episodes for free. We also have our Adventure Rider Radio stickers available. So if you haven't got one for your motorcycle or maybe your shop wall or your toolbox, you want to drop by the website and check out our merch section, our store that has the stickers on there. We have T-shirts available as well. Drop by and grab yourself one to help support the show. And I'd like to give a special thanks for this show to our co-producer, of course, Elizabeth Martin, who puts a lot of work into each one of these episodes. Also, our advertisers who support the show, and that is Max BMW, Best Rest Products, Aerostitch, and now Giant Loop. When you're visiting one of our advertisers, make sure that you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That way, they know it's working for them, and that keeps the show going. Also, when you drop by our website, make sure you click on the comment button. Let us know what you think of the show, what you've heard, and maybe some ideas that you have for upcoming shows. And of course, we're on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. On Twitter, we are at ADV Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. See you next week. I'm Susan Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.